Welcome back to another episode of the education series on the BTS podcast. I'm Ciara Minova, the host, and today's discussion will be on behaviorism. The education series is where we deliver short 10 to 15 minutes educational content on everything psychology related and some of the studies and earlier works done in the field. Today, we will focus on behaviorism and its two main learning theories, classical and operant conditioning. Let's get started. So, behaviorism. The rise of behaviorism came in the 1980s, and it's a school of psychology that believes association is what drives behavior. That means that all our behaviors are influenced and learned from external forces rather than internal forces. Behavior is learned through the interaction with our environment through a process called conditioning. So behaviorists focus not on the emotional or psychological conditions of people, but rather on their external and outward behavior. So they think that psychological disorders are best treated by altering behavioral patterns compared to, for example, introspectionism or psychoanalytical theories. Behaviorists criticize cognitive approaches, calling them unscientific and claiming that it should be abandoned. Now, behaviors don't reject the fact that inner states exist, but they merely think it isn't relevant as a measurable or functional analysis. Our internal thought processes are like a black box, complex and unmeasurable. John B. Watson, who was an American behaviorist, said, The time seems to have come when psychology must discard all reference to consciousness, when it no longer delude itself into thinking that it is making mental states the object of observation. So those are behaviors for you. But they weren't completely wrong. As we know today, our environment plays a big role in the way we learn and behave. So let's go into some of those examples of behaviorism, some of which you probably already know. First, we're going to look into classical conditioning. Does the name Ivan Pavlov ring a bell? Now, an interesting fact, Ivan Pavlov, who discovered classical conditioning, was actually not a psychologist, and the classical conditioning theory was found out by accident. Ivan Pavlov was a Russian physiologist, and he studied various reflexes and digestions of dogs. So as Pavlov was conducting research on dogs' digestion, he noticed that their reactions to food slowly changed over time. In the beginning, he noticed that the dogs would only salivate when the food was right in front of them. But afterwards, he would see that they would salivate even before the food was brought. For example, when the sound of the cart bringing the food was being used. So he decided to test this by setting up an experiment where he would pair the giving of food with the sound of the bell. So a neutral stimulus, which is the bell, with an unconditioned stimulus, which is the food. When Pavlov constantly paired the food with the sound of the bell, eventually the dogs began to salivate to the sound of the bell, even when the food was no longer present. So what had happened was during conditioning, the unconditioned stimulus, which is the food, plus the neutral stimuli, which is the bell, was repeated constantly. The neutral stimulus, the bell, now becomes a conditioned stimulus, and this is what behaviorists call associated learning, and it is one of the basic learning methods. Because the dogs now associated food to the sound of the bell, they would now salivate even without the presence of food, because they were conditioned by Fred Pavlov here to believe that every time the bell rings, the food will be present. However, there is also a process of extinction that comes with conditioning. Extinction is when the conditioned behavior gradually weakens, resulting in a decrease or disappearance of the behavior. In other words, the learning behavior occurs less often and eventually stops altogether, and the conditioned stimulus returns to neutral. This happens in our everyday life of learning as well. Think of a child that gets candy every time it screams. 
Once the parent stops giving the child candy every time it screams, eventually the child will realize that this association is no longer working and it will become extinct. Now, in Pavlov's case, if every time Pavlov started ringing the bell and there was no food present, and the bell would go back to being a neutral stimulus. Now, whilst Pavlov studied dogs, John B. Watson, who I quoted earlier, was another behaviorist who also studied associative learning, but this time with humans. By conducting his most infamous and unethical experiment, known as Little Albert, he believed that you could train people to be whatever you want them to be through conditioning. So the Little Albert experiment demonstrated that classical conditioning works in human beings as well. In this experiment, a previously unafraid baby was conditioned to become afraid of a furry white rat. Albert was a nine-month-old baby who, as I said, demonstrated no fear of rats. In the beginning of the experiment, when Albert was only 11 months old, John and his graduate assistant Rosalie Rayner placed a rat on the table in front of Albert, who reacted with just curiosity, but no sign of fear when the animal was nearby. So initially, he had no fear of rats. As the experiment progressed, however, Watson began making a loud noise by pounding on a steel bar with a hammer every time he showed little Albert the rat. In the beginning, Albert cried in reaction to the noise, but after a period of conditioning, he also cried in response to the rat, even without the loud noise. So now, Albert has been conditioned to associate the loud noise with the rat. Interestingly, or more like disturbingly, this fear extended to other furry objects and animals too, such as a white fluffy rabbit, for example. He responded with fear despite not even hearing the loud noise when presented with those animals poor kid. So by constantly banging a racket every time there was a white rat in sight, Albert learned to associate the rat with the sound of the bank. This experiment is another prototypical example of classical conditioning. One conclusion Watson drew from the experiment was that fear may have a critical impact on personality development. Unfortunately, we don't really know if Albert went through a process of extinction later by eliminating the conditioned fear. Some say he moved away with his mother very shortly after the experiment, and others say he died at the age of five from hydrocephalus. But either way, this was one of the most profound studies of psychology at the time. Because it showed that potentially, we can get people to become conditioned to certain beliefs, values, and ideologies by the influence of their upbringing and environment. If you ever read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, you will remember that the poor children in the book were conditioned to dislike or even fear books. That way, their lower status was maintained as they avoided learning from books. Now, classical conditioning can teach us a lot about ourselves. It can actually help us understand how to break certain patterns or behaviors that we have and also unlearn many things that we were taught to learn. This is often being used now in therapy through what is called exposure therapy. For example, if you have a phobia of dogs or a fear of elevators, the person can be constantly exposed to what they fear until they no longer fear it. And then those old negative patterns could potentially and eventually be broken. I can give an example of myself. I used to be a germaphobe and I would always relate washing my hands and sanitizing my hands as a prevention from me getting sick. After some exposure therapy, I had to learn to stop washing my hands after practically everything I touched. At the beginning, it was very difficult. But the more I exposed myself to germs the more I broke that conditioning of hand washing or hand sanitizing equals being healthy. So classical conditioning can teach us a lot of ways of learning and unlearning behaviors. But there is another theory of conditioning where the use of positive and negative reinforcement helps us learn things. And these behaviorists believe that behaviors can be changed or influenced if using a reinforcer or a punishment. 
And this is called operant or instrumental conditioning. Edward Thorndike and B.F. Skinner are the most referenced in psychology for their work in operant conditioning or reinforcement learning. Skinner believed that the concept of free will was simply an illusion. He thought that all of human behavior was simply the direct result of conditioning. His idea that learning is the result of consequences is based on the law of effect, which was first proposed by the psychologist Edward Thorndike. Now, this law, or operant conditioning basically, relies on a fairly simple premise. Actions that are followed by reinforcement will be strengthened and more likely to happen again in the future, and actions that are followed by punishment will be discouraged and are more likely to not happen again in the future. And there are two main principles that influence operant conditioning. One, which is reinforcements. Reinforcements are those that can increase the rate of behavior, and they can be both positive or negative. And then there's punishments. And punishments are those that decrease the rate of behavior, and they can also be both positive or negative. Now, it's important to note here that the word positive and negative doesn't mean good or bad. Positive just means something is added to decrease bad behavior, and negative means something is removed to increase good behavior. Let's go into a few examples to make sense of this. Now, positive reinforcement can look like a parent telling their child that if they clean their room or do their homework, they can go out to a friend's house later on. So this is a positive reinforcement because you are adding something to get a reward. So cleaning the room or doing the homework results in going out at night. An example of a negative reinforcement can look like a teacher telling the students that if they work hard in class, she will remove tonight's homework. So if that keeps happening, students will probably work harder in class to avoid homework. So here you are removing something to increase good behavior. You are removing homework to increase good behavior. Now let's go into punishments. So a positive punishment can look like adding more chores or giving someone more homework if they haven't cleaned their room on time. Here again, you are adding something such as chores to discourage bad behavior. Examples of a negative punishment can be removing or taking away access to someone's phone or PlayStation if homework is not complete. Once again, you are removing something, in this case, access to the phone, the PlayStation, to decrease their bad behavior. Now, operant conditioning is commonly used among parents and teachers with kids, as given in the examples above, but it is also used in marketing strategies and casinos through the use of slot machines through reinforcement schedule learning, but that is beyond the scope of this episode. And be mindful that extinction can also happen in operant conditioning as well. But in real life, does it always happen this way? Is reinforcement and punishment always the straightforward? Technically, the answer is no. We can't actually say whether something that is added or taken away will increase or decrease behavior until we actually observe the changes. This is because as human beings, we are really complex and our motives may not be as straightforward as, say, an animal pressing a lever to get a reward, which was done in Skinner's experiment. There are some things that can influence and affect our behavior universally. These are called primary or unconditioned reinforcers. These include things like food, water, shelter, things that both animals and humans typically need to survive. There is a biological drive in us to satisfy these stimuli. But the strength of the reinforcer varies. If you are super hungry, for example, food will be a very strong influence, for example, in contrast to if you're feeling full. Same with the other factors. 
Other human reinforcers include social factors such as love and friendship, praise and approval, or even indicators of social status such as having the latest iPhone, a sports car, or the latest Nike Air trainers. Depending on our values, these different reinforcers can have different meanings or importance in our lives. If, for example, you were praised by your friends when you got the latest or the most expensive phone, you later might want to keep this reinforcement up by always being the first one to get the latest iPhone, for example, to maintain the status and appreciation by your peers. So we do have to be mindful of the reinforcement in our lives. Others can include abstract concepts such as self-respect, self-worth, or satisfaction. Is pleasing people a way to gain respect or self-esteem? Do we keep people-pleasing because it makes us feel wanted and approved? As you can see, it is often difficult to determine what influences human behavior in the real world. The process is layered and complex, influenced by many, many factors. Often, we are unaware of what drives our own behavior, something that psychotherapy aims to help people understand in order to change their behavior. So it's interesting to reflect about these things in our own lives, things that maybe increase our behavior and things that decrease them. Some may be common and obvious, but others may be particular to you and also unconscious. As always, I'd like to end this episode with a quote and another one from John B. Watson. He says, give me a dozen healthy infants, well-formed, and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select doctor, lawyer, artist, and yes, even beggar and thief, regardless of a talents, penchants, tendencies, abilities, and race of his ancestors. Thankfully, no one gave Watson any infants, and he proceeded to work in marketing. Although some of these behavioral studies were controversial and even unethical, they actually helped us develop positive ways of using conditioning principles in therapy and were a key step in the evolution of what came to be called behavioral therapy, or now known and extended to cognitive behavioral therapy. So we do have something to thank these behaviorists for. Well, there you have it. We reached the end of another education series episode on the BTS podcast. Once again, this episode is a brief introduction to the field of conditioning and did not discuss some of the more complex attributes such as reinforcement schedules, which I would encourage you to explore further if interested. If you like this episode, please do subscribe, share, and also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform to help us grow. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening as always, and we'll catch you in the next episode.